Sadly, many things done in the name of the Lord are not from him. While seeking to do things for the Lord in his name, some are actually doing things on their own. They see a need or an opportunity and pour themselves into a ministry to meet that need, assuming they are doing the Lord's will. But as we discovered last week, that may not always be the case. In fact, Paul gave us several questions to ask of any ministry, including our own, that can help us evaluate whether a ministry is actually from the Lord or not. One of the first things we need to observe is, is it always comparing? You know, ministry should be evaluated on the basis of what it's doing and not how it compares to any other ministry. Did the Lord initiate it? Is it fairly obvious that the Lord opened the door to a particular ministry, or did someone kick the door open, forcing his vision on others? Does it overextend itself? Can a ministry afford what it's trying to do, or is it unnecessarily duplicating or competing with another ministry? Does it grow by itself? Is the ministry expanding naturally? Or does it take constant promotion to make it grow? And finally, does it bring glory to God? Or is someone always basking in the glory of what he's doing for the Lord? I think these questions can help us evaluate the nature of a ministry. But they really don't evaluate the nature of the gospel proclaimed by a ministry. You know, a ministry can be very spiritual in nature, and it can avoid the pitfalls of being driven by an entrepreneur, but still not be doctrinally sound. In fact, as Paul points out in our text for this week, there are some who actually preach another Jesus, offer a different spirit, and proclaim a different gospel. So we not only need to evaluate the nature of a ministry, we also need to carefully evaluate the gospel being proclaimed by a ministry. Sometimes that's easy to do, and sometimes it's not. You don't have to look very far into the beliefs of Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, or Christian scientists to see that there's a reason they're classified as cults. Doctrinal differences between denominations, however, may not be quite as obvious. Now, not all differences are theologically significant, but some are. So we need to know how to spot a different gospel when it's being taught. And the Corinthians... We're in such a need. They were being taken in by a different gospel, one being proclaimed by the Judaizers, Jewish Christians, who sought to make Christianity into a legalistic sect of Judaism. And these Judaizers had taken the offensive against Paul, in his absence, of course, and against his teaching. 
Now he found himself in the awkward position of having to defend himself by letter. He's already made it clear that he doesn't like boasting, but since the Corinthians seemed to give credence to the Judaizers when they did so, Paul felt he had to do the same to make them listen to him. So in our text for this morning, he begins with a defense of his apostleship and the gospel he proclaims. And that's fortunate for us. Because by examining what he said about himself and the way he proclaimed the gospel, we can note some, some things to uh, try to look for when trying to identify a false gospel and those who might be proclaiming it. One of the first things we note is Paul's fear that the Corinthians were being led astray from the simplicity of the gospel, indicating that a different gospel, as a rule, will not be simple. We're in the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul begins by apologizing for what he's about to do. He's going to have to brag a bit, and he calls it foolishness. He also says what he's about to do is motivated by jealousy, but not the green-eyed kind. He's motivated by godly jealousy, a jealousy that is not self-centered, but God-centered. He's not jealous of their finding another teacher, but of their in reality finding another God of becoming unfaithful to Christ. He's afraid that they're on the brink of being deceived as the serpent had deceived Eve. Apparently there were some snakes loose in the church at Corinth, and they were striking at the minds of the Christians. And notice the nature of their attack. They weren't saying Paul's gospel was too complicated too hard to understand, and that they had something easier to offer. They were, in fact, trying to lead them away from the simplicity of the gospel. They were suggesting Paul's gospel was too simplistic, that there wasn't enough to it, that it didn't go far enough, that he'd been holding back on them, keeping them in the dark. They were going to let the Corinthians in on the whole truth, and let them see how things really were. But as Paul pointed out, that was the same line Satan used in the garden. God told Adam and Eve that he had given them everything they needed to enjoy life and to have a good relationship with him. There was no need for them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, if they did, it would ruin everything, their life and the relationship with him. 
Satan convinced them God was holding out on them. That if they really wanted to be like God, they would have to gain knowledge that hadn't been given to them. That's the same thing the Judaizers were doing. Apparently, they were saying Paul was preaching some juvenile, simplistic faith. He was teaching that all you needed to do was believe Jesus died for you and that if you trust him and let him live within you, your relationship with God would be secure. The Judaizers insisted that wasn't enough. They said in order to have a relationship with God, you had to know the law and follow all the regulations and customs and rituals that you needed to follow a schedule of religious observances and practices to convince God of your sincerity. You had to do this and not that. You had to give up this and give up that. You had to learn this and learn that. Then and only then would you find approval in God's eyes. That was the message of the Judaizers. And that's usually the message of different Gospels today. Believe it or not, most people do not like to be totally dependent on grace. They feel better if they think they're earning their standing before God, at, at least partially. So if someone comes along and makes salvation more complicated, tougher to achieve, they're attracted to it. It's actually been said that if God declared that everyone who would crawl one mile over broken glass would be guaranteed eternal life, everyone would do it. They would feel as if God then owed them something, or at least as if they'd paid their dues. That's the appeal of false gospels and a characteristic of most of them. Now, it may be expressed differently. They may require the mental gymnastics of Christian science, the pre-COVID door-knocking of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the secret ceremonies of the Mormons. But most will be more complicated than the simple, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Very few of them would respond, as did Karl Barth, a famous theologian of the last generation who, when asked what was the greatest theological thought that had ever crossed his mind, said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. No, a different gospel won't be that simple. And most will have a dynamic spokesperson promoting it. Let's read on. For if one comes and preaches another gospel whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. 
Paul, I think, is being just a little sarcastic here, especially in verse 4 when he says, you bear this beautifully. (laughs) He's not praising them for the beauty of their response to a different gospel. He's sarcastically commenting on how they've accepted a beautifully presented new gospel. Apparently, some in Corinth were preaching another Jesus. Now, it was the same Jesus of Nazareth, but what they said about him made him out to be an entirely different Jesus. Furthermore, the message they proclaimed, while being spiritual in nature, wasn't empowered by the Holy Spirit. And even though their gospel sounded like good news, it was not the good news. Yet the Corinthians were accepting what these men, who according to verse 5, were setting themselves up as most eminent apostles, had to say. And apparently they said it very well. By comparison with them, Paul said he was unskilled in speech. But then again, he did say in 1 Corinthians that he didn't try to preach with cleverness or superiority of speech. He didn't want his message and preaching to be persuasive words of wisdom, but demonstrations of the spirit and power. He didn't want people to listen because he was a flowery orator, nor be moved because he was a dynamic motivator. He wanted people to listen because he had something to say. And in that department, he adds, he took second seat to no one. He was skilled in knowledge, or we should say blessed with knowledge, because the Lord gave it to him. And that knowledge was very evident. Paul knew the will of God, and he communicated it accurately. But he wasn't an ex officio member of the Actors Guild putting on live performances. He didn't want his presentation of the gospel to overshadow the gospel itself. By comparison, many preachers of other Gospels depend on their style or their skill to gain a following. They have charismatic personalities and generally project well from the stage so people listen to whatever they have to say because of the way they say it. There's an obvious caution for us here. We must carefully examine what the past present, and future superstars of the religious world have to say and the way they say it. For if someone is coming on too strong, we better back off and look again because he or she may be hiding something very deceptive under that cloak of rhetoric. Then Paul brings up the matter of money. And by comparing his attitude about support and fundraising with those who preach a different gospel, one thing becomes obvious. A different gospel won't be free. Verses 7 through 12. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, 
I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do. That I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they're boasting. Now again, we have to read between the lines a bit because we have only one side of the discussion. But it looks like these most eminent apostles who were preaching a different gospel in Corinth had been bad-mouthing Paul for not accepting money from the Corinthians. Verse 12 seems to indicate they wanted to be supported financially and were claiming Paul wouldn't take anything from them because he knew he had nothing to offer them in return. Or he was just trying to keep aloof from them, thinking himself too good to take their money. Paul responded by asking if it were a sin for him to preach the gospel without charge. He had worked hard as a tent maker while in Corinth and only accepted money from the Christians in Macedonia so he'd be able to preach to the Corinthians without charge. He didn't do that because he didn't love them, but because he did. He didn't want anything to stand in the way of their accepting the gospel. He was willing to humble himself, to go without, in order that they might be exalted before the throne of God. Now, Paul would accept support from those who had become Christians, as he did from the Macedonians, but he wouldn't let anyone pay for the privilege of hearing the gospel. Now, that can easily be contrasted with preachers of different gospels who charge before they let you in on the secrets they've discovered or rid you of the psycho-spiritual problems that you have. If you want in on their gospel, you have to buy their books or attend their seminars or sign over your possessions and move into their communities. They might even pay millions for advertising during the Super Bowl in order to find new customers, as did Scientology this year. Marketing good news for a prophet doesn't sound like Jesus' instruction to his disciples in Matthew 10.8, where he said, freely you received, freely give. But then again, the purveyors of a different gospel aren't disciples of that Jesus. When it comes to spiritual matters, the old adage about nothing of value being free is reversed. If it's not free, you should become more than just a little suspicious. The last point Paul makes is that a different gospel will usually look good. Verses 13 through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. Paul doesn't pull any punches when he expresses the true nature of these preachers of different gospels. He says they are false apostles, deceitful workers, and servants of Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light. You know, even Satan can look good. Like the old Terry Gibbs song said about the devil having blue eyes and wearing blue jeans. Paul says these false apostles can disguise themselves as servants of righteousness and the message they proclaim can really sound good. And how true that is. Now, different gospels aren't accepted because they look bad, but because they look so good. What could appear to be more wholesome and family-friendly than Mormonism? Because you want to really understand how Mormon theology plays out in the real world, you should read John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven is Shocking. Now, it's not endorsed by the current heads of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it's based on the teachings of their founder. You know, it shouldn't surprise us how Satan's servants can disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But sorry to say, many Christians in our pluralistic society are caught off guard by it and are led astray from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ by it. We need to be on guard. There was a time when the only voice you heard proclaiming the gospel was your local preacher. Now you can hear everybody with the push of a button. And we must expect that some will be preaching another Jesus, offering a different spirit, and proclaiming a different gospel. If someone is calling into question the simplicity of the gospel message, building a following on the basis of his charismatic personality or oratorical skills, getting rich off the contributions of people hungry to know what he has to offer, and promising a picture-perfect life free of heartache and struggle, you can be pretty sure the gospel he's proclaiming is not the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is simple enough for a child to understand, even though the depths of it will never be plumbed in this life. The gospel itself will always outshine the one presenting it. The gospel is made available without cost, but once accepted, it costs you everything. And the gospel has a beauty, but it's the beauty of a cross and a sacrificial life. If that's the gospel you want, I, like Paul, can betroth you to the Christ who offers it. 
You can come out of the bondage of false gospels and disguised darkness into the gospel of freedom, gladness, and light. You can come to the Jesus Paul preached, the one I'm privileged to offer today as Savior and Lord. If you've not done so, and I'm speaking primarily now to those who are watching online and may not have ever heard this message before, now is the time to accept the gospel. Now is the time to come to the real Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not only entrusting the truth to us, but giving us the tools we need to be discerning. The tools we need to to think, to examine the messages that we're being bombarded with. Churches are constantly evolving these days and accepting things that are not biblical. They're debating among themselves and arguing denominationally whether they should accept behaviors that you've condemned. They're arguing about what's essential for salvation. They're even questioning the possibility of knowing anything absolutely true. Father, there are a lot of temptations out there to buy into things that are culturally accepted things that would make us very popular and give us praise in the press. Help us to be faithful to you and you alone and to build a ministry that is built and maintained by examining your word and trusting the gospel as presented 2,000 years ago by Christ and by the apostles. May we be solidly, solidly built in the foundation of absolute truth. Truth that's made available only in the word of God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.